0: Conan and Friends, a fantasy pulp fiction audiobook podcast. Voice characterizations and sound design by Audiodrama.ai. John Carter of Mars by Edgar Rice Burroughs. Episode 8, Book 1, A Princess of Mars. Chapter 22. I find Deja. The Major Domo, to whom I reported, had been given instructions to station me near the person of the Jeddak, who, in time of war, is always in great danger of assassination, as the rule that all is fair in war seems to constitute the entire ethics of Martian conflict. He therefore escorted me immediately to the apartment in which Denkosis then was. The ruler was engaged in conversation with his son Sab then and several courtiers of his household and did not perceive my entrance. The walls of the apartment were completely hung with splendid tapestries which hid any windows or doors which may have pierced them. The room was lighted by imprisoned rays of sunshine held between the ceiling proper and what appeared to be a ground-glass false ceiling a few inches below. My guide drew aside one of the tapestries, disclosing a passage which encircled the room between the hangings and the walls of the chamber. Within this passage I was to remain, he said, so long as then Kosis was in the apartment. When he left, I was to follow. My only duty was to guard the ruler and keep out of sight as much as possible. I would be relieved after a period of four hours. The major domo then left me. The tapestries were of a strange weaving, which gave the appearance of heavy solidity from one side, but from my hiding place I could perceive all that took place within the room as readily as though there had been no curtain intervening. Scarcely had I gained my post than the tapestry at the opposite end of the chamber, separated and four soldiers of the guard, entered, surrounding a female figure. As they approached Than Kosis, the soldiers fell to either side, and they're standing before the Jeddak and not ten feet from me, her beautiful face radiant with smiles, was Dejah Thoris. Sab Van, Prince of Zodanga, advanced to meet her, and hand in hand, they approached close to the Jeddak, than Kosis looked up in surprise, and, rising, saluted her. To what strange freak do I owe this visit from the Princess of Helium, who, two days ago, with rare consideration for my pride, assured me that she would prefer Tall Hodges, the green Thark, to my son? Dejah Thoris only smiled the more, and with the roguish dimples playing at the corners of her mouth, she made answer. From the beginning of time upon Barzum, it has been the prerogative of woman to change her mind as she listed, and to dissemble in matters concerning her heart, that you will forgive Than Kosis, as has your son. Two days ago I was not sure of his love for me, but now I am, and I have come to beg of you to forget my rash words and to accept the assurance of the Princess of Helium that when the time comes she will wed Sabthan, Prince of Zodanga. "'I am glad that you have so decided,' replied Thankosis. "'It is far from my desire to push war further against the people of Helium, and your promise shall be recorded and a proclamation to my people issued forthwith.' "'It were better.' Thancosis Kosis, interrupted Dejah Thoris, that the proclamation wait the ending of this war. It would look strange indeed to my people, and to yours were the Princess of Helium to give herself to her country's enemy in the midst of hostilities. "'Cannot the war be ended at once?' spoke Sab Than. "'It requires but the word of Thancosis Kosis to bring peace. "'Say it, my father.' say the word that will hasten my happiness and end this unpopular strife? We shall see, replied Thancosis, how the people of Helium take to peace. I shall at least offer it to them. Dejah Thoris, after a few words, turned and left the apartment, still followed by her guards. Thus was the edifice of my brief dream of happiness dashed, broken, to the ground of reality. The woman... For whom I had offered my life, and from whose lips I had so recently heard a declaration of love for me, had lightly forgotten my very existence, and smilingly given herself to the son of her people's most hated enemy. Although I had heard it with my own ears, I could not believe it. I must search out her apartments and force her to repeat the cruel truth to me alone before I would be convinced, and so I deserted my post and hastened through the passage behind the tapestries toward the door by which she had left the chamber. Slipping quietly through this opening, I discovered a maze of winding corridors, branching and turning in every direction. Running rapidly down first one and then another of them, I soon became hopelessly lost, and was standing panting against a side wall when I heard voices near me. Apparently, they were coming from the opposite side of the partition, against which I leaned, and presently I made out the tones of Dejah Thoris. I could not hear the words, but I knew that I could not possibly be mistaken in the voice. Moving on a few steps, I discovered another passageway, at the end of which lay a door. Walking boldly forward, I pushed into the room, only to find myself in a small antechamber, in which were the four guards who had accompanied her. One of them instantly arose and accosted me, asking the nature of my business. I am from Than Kosis, I replied, and wish to speak privately with Dejah Thoris, Princess of Helium. And your order? asked the fellow. I did not know what he meant, but replied that I was a member of the guard, and without waiting for a reply from him, I strode toward the opposite door of the antechamber, behind which I could hear Dejah Thoris conversing. But my entrance was not to be so easily accomplished. The guardsman stepped before me, saying, No one comes from Thankosis without carrying an order or the password. You must give me one or the other before you may pass. The only order I require, my friend, to enter where I will, hangs at my side, I answered, tapping my long sword, Will you let me pass in peace or no? For reply... He whipped out his own sword, calling to the others to join him, and thus the four stood with drawn weapons, barring my further progress. "'You are not here by the order of Than Kosis,' cried the one who had first addressed me, "'and not only shall you not enter the apartments of the Princess of Helium, but you shall go back to Than Kosis under guard.' To explain this unwarranted temerity, throw down your sword. You cannot hope to overcome four of us, he added with a grim smile. My reply was a quick thrust, which left me but three antagonists, and I can assure you that they were worthy of my mettle. They had me backed against the wall in no time, fighting for my life. Slowly, I worked my way to a corner of the room where I could force them to come at me only one at a time, and thus we fought upward of twenty minutes. The clanging of steel on steel producing a veritable bedlam in the little room. The noise had brought Dejah Thoris to the door of her apartment, and there she stood throughout the conflict with Sola at her back peering over her shoulder. Her face was set and emotionless, and I knew that she did not recognize me, nor did Sola. Finally— a lucky cut, brought down a second guardsman, and then, with only two opposing me, I changed my tactics and rushed them down after the fashion of my fighting that had won me many a victory. The third fell within ten seconds after the second, and the last lay dead upon the bloody floor a few moments later. They were brave men and noble fighters, and it grieved me that I had been forced to kill them, but I would have willingly depopulated all Barsoom could I have reached the side of my Dejah Thoris in no other way. Sheathing my bloody blade, I advanced toward my Martian princess, who still stood mutely gazing at me without sign of recognition. "'Who are you, Zodangan?' she whispered. "'Another enemy to harass me in my misery.' "'I am a friend,' I answered. "'A once cherished friend.' No friend of Helium's princess wears that medal," she replied. And yet the voice, I have heard it before. It is not, it cannot be, no, for he is dead. It is, though, my princess, none other than John Carter, I said. Do you not recognize, even through paint and strange metal, the heart of your chieftain? As I came close to her... She swayed toward me with outstretched hands, but as I reached to take her in my arms, she drew back with a shudder and a little moan of misery. "'Too late, too late,' she grieved. "'Oh, my chieftain that was, and whom I thought dead, had you but returned one little hour before. But now it is too late, too late.' "'What do you mean, Dejah Thoris?' I cried." That you would not have promised yourself to the Zodangan prince had you known that I lived? think you, John Carter, that I would give my heart to you yesterday and today to another. I thought that it lay buried with your ashes in the pits of Warhoon, and so today I have promised my body to another to save my people from the curse of a victorious Zodangan army. But I am not dead, my princess. I have come to claim you, and all Zodanga cannot prevent it. It is too late, John Carter. My promise is given, and on Barsoom that is final. The ceremonies which follow later are but meaningless formalities. They make the fact of marriage no more certain than does the funeral cortege of a jeddak again place the seal of death upon him. I am as good as married, John Carter. No longer may you call me your princess. No longer are you my chieftain. I know but little of your customs here upon Barsoom Dejah Thoris. But I do know that I love you, and if you meant the last words you spoke to me that day, as the hordes of Warhoon were charging down upon us, no other man shall ever claim you as his bride. You meant them then, my princess, and you, mean them still, say that it is true. I meant them, John Carter, she whispered. I cannot repeat them now, for I have given myself to another. Ah, if you had only known our ways, my friend, she continued. Half to herself, the promise would have been yours long months ago, and you could have claimed me before all others. It might have meant the fall of Helium, but I would have given my empire for my Tharkian chief. Then aloud she said, Do you remember the night when you offended me? You called me your princess without having asked my hand of me, and then you boasted that you had fought for me. You did not know, and I should not have been offended. I see that now but there was no one to tell you what I could not. That upon Barsoom there are two kinds of women in the cities of the red men, the one they fight for, that they may ask them in marriage, the other kind they fight for also, but never ask their hands. When a man has won a woman, he may address her as his princess, or in any of the several terms which signify possession, You had fought for me, but had never asked me in marriage, and so when you called me your princess, you see, she faltered, I was hurt, but even then, John Carter, I did not repulse you as I should have done, until you made it doubly worse by taunting me with having won me through combat. I do not need ask your forgiveness now, Dejah Thoris, I cried. You must know that my fault was of ignorance of your Barsoomian customs. What I failed to do through implicit belief that my petition would be presumptuous and unwelcome, I do now, Dejah Thoris. I ask you to be my wife, and by all the Virginian fighting blood that flows in my veins, you shall be. No, John Carter, it is useless. She cried hopelessly. I may never be yours while Sab Than lives. You have sealed his death warrant, my princess. Sab Than dies. Nor that either. She hastened to explain. I may not wed the man who slays my husband, even in self-defense. It is custom. We are ruled by custom upon Barzum. It is useless, my friend. You must bear the sorrow with me. That, at least, we may share in common. That and the memory of the brief days among the Tharks. You must go now, nor ever see me again. Goodbye, my chieftain. That was disheartened and dejected. I withdrew from the room, but I was not entirely discouraged, nor would I admit that Dejah Thoris was lost to me until the ceremony had actually been performed. As I wandered along the corridors, I was as absolutely lost in the mazes of winding passageways as I had been before I discovered Dejah Thoris's apartments. I knew that my only hope lay in escape from the city of Zodenga, for the matter of the four dead guardsmen would have to be explained, and as I could never reach my original post without a guide, suspicion would surely rest on me so soon as I was discovered wandering aimlessly through the palace. Presently, I came upon a spiral runway leading to a lower floor, and this I followed downward for several stories until I reached the doorway of a large apartment in which were a number of guardsmen. The walls of this room were hung with transparent tapestries, behind which I secreted myself without being apprehended. The conversation of the guardsmen was general and awakened no interest in me until an officer entered the room and ordered four of the men to relieve the detail who were guarding the Princess of Helium. Now I knew my troubles would commence in earnest, and indeed they were upon me all too soon, for it seemed that the squad had scarcely left the guard-room before one of their number burst in again, breathlessly, crying that they had found their four comrades butchered in the antechamber in a moment. The entire palace was alive with the people. Guardsmen, officers, courtiers, servants, and slaves ran helter skelter through the corridors and apartments carrying messages and orders and searching for signs of the assassin. This was my opportunity, and slim as it appeared, I grasped it. For as a number of soldiers came hurrying past my hiding place, I fell in behind them and followed through the mazes of the palace until, in passing through a great hall, I saw the blessed light of day coming in through a series of larger windows. Here I left my guides, and, slipping to the nearest window, sought for an avenue of escape. The windows opened upon a great balcony which overlooked one of the broad avenues of Zodenga. The ground was about thirty feet below, and at a like distance from the building was a wall fully twenty feet high, constructed of polished glass about a foot in thickness. To a red Martian escape by this path would have appeared impossible, but to me, with my earthly strength and agility, it seemed already accomplished. My only fear was in being detected before darkness fell, for I could not make the leap in broad daylight while the court below and the avenue beyond were crowded with Zodangans. Accordingly, I searched for a hiding-place and finally found one by accident, inside a huge hanging ornament which swung from the ceiling of the hall and about ten feet from the floor. Into the capacious, bowl-like vase I sprang with ease, and scarcely had I settled down within it than I heard a number of people enter the apartment. The group stopped beneath my hiding-place, and I could plainly overhear their every word. "'It is the work of heliomites," said one of the men." "'Yes, O Jeddak, but how had they access to the palace? "'I could believe that even with the diligent care of your guardsmen "'a single enemy might reach the inner chambers, "'but how a force of six or eight fighting men "'could have done so unobserved is beyond me. "'We shall soon know, however, for here comes the royal psychologist.' "'Another man now joined the group, "'and, after making his formal greetings to his ruler, said, "'O mighty Jeddak, it is a strange tale I read in the dead minds of your faithful guardsmen. They were felled not by a number of fighting men, but by a single opponent. He paused to let the full weight of this announcement impress his hearers, and that his statement was scarcely credited was evidenced by the impatient exclamation of incredulity which escaped the lips of Than What manner of weird tale are you bringing me, Noten? he cried. "'It is the truth, my Jeddak,' replied the psychologist. In fact, the impressions were strongly marked on the brain of each of the four guardsmen. Their antagonist was a very tall man, wearing the metal of one of your own guardsmen. And his fighting ability was little short of marvelous, for he fought fair against the entire four and vanquished them by his surpassing skill and superhuman strength and endurance.' Though he wore the metal of Zodenga, my Jeddak, such a man was never seen before in this or any other country upon Barzoom. The mind of the Princess of Helium, whom I have examined and questioned, was a blank to me. She has perfect control, and I could not read one iota of it. She said that she witnessed a portion of the encounter, and that when she looked there was but one man engaged with the guardsmen, a man whom she did not recognize as ever having seen. "'Where is my erstwhile saviour? spoke another of the party, and I recognized the voice of the cousin of Thancosis, whom I had rescued from the green warriors. "'By the medal of my first ancestor he went on, but the description fits him to perfection, especially as to his fighting ability. "'Where is this man?' cried Thancosis. "'Have him brought to me at once. "'What know you of him, cousin?' It seemed strange to me now, that I think upon it, that there should have been such a fighting man in Zodanga, of whose name, even. We were ignorant before today, and his name, too, John Carter, who ever heard of such a name upon Barsoom. Word was soon brought that I was nowhere to be found, either in the palace or at my former quarters in the barracks of the air scout squadron. Kantos Khan, they had found and questioned, but he knew nothing of my whereabouts, and, as to my past, he had told them he knew as little, since he had but recently met me during our captivity among the war "'Keep your eyes on this other one,' commanded Than Kosis. "'He also is a stranger, and likely as not they both hail from helium, and where one is we shall sooner or later find the other. Quadruple the air patrol and let every man who leaves the city by air or ground be subjected to the closest scrutiny.' Another messenger now entered with word that I was still within the palace walls. The likeness of every person who has entered or left the palace grounds today has been carefully examined, concluded the fellow, and not one approaches the likeness of this new padwar of the guards, other than that which was recorded of him at the time he entered. Then we will have him shortly commented, Than Kosis contentedly, and in the meanwhile we will repair to the apartments of the Princess of Helium and question her in regard to the affair, she may know more than she cared to divulge to you, no tan. They left the hall, and, as darkness had fallen without, I slipped lightly from my hiding-place and hastened to the balcony. Few were in sight, and choosing a moment, when none seemed near, I sprang quickly to the top of the glass wall, and from there to the avenue beyond the palace grounds. Chapter 23 Lost in the Sky Without effort at concealment, I hastened to the vicinity of our quarters, where I felt sure I should find Kantos Khan. As I neared the building, I became more careful, as I judged, and rightly, that the place would be guarded. Several men in civilian metal loitered near the front entrance, and in the rear were others. My only means of reaching— unseen. The upper story where our apartments were situated was through an adjoining building, and after considerable maneuvering, I managed to attain the roof of a shop several doors away. Leaping from roof to roof, I soon reached an open window in the building where I hoped to find the Heliumite, and in another moment I stood in the room before him. He was alone and showed no surprise at my coming, saying he had expected me much earlier, as my tour of duty must have ended sometime since. I saw that he knew nothing of the events of the day at the palace, and when I had enlightened him, he was all excitement. The news that Dejah Thoris had promised her hand to Sab Than filled him with dismay. It cannot be, he exclaimed. It is impossible. Why no man in all Helium but would prefer death to the selling of our loved princess to the ruling house of Zodanga. She must have lost her mind to have assented to such an atrocious bargain. You, who do not know how we of Helium love the members of our ruling house, cannot appreciate the horror with which I contemplate such an unholy alliance. What can be done, John Carter? he continued. You are a resourceful man. Can you not think of some way to save Helium from this disgrace? "'If I can come within sword's reach of Sab Than,' I answered, "'I can solve the difficulty insofar as Helium is concerned. "'But for personal reasons, I would prefer that "'another struck the blow that frees Dejah Thoris.' "'Kantos Khan eyed me narrowly before he spoke. "'You love her,' he said. "'Does she know it?' "'She knows it, Kantos Khan, "'and repulses me only cause she is promised to Sab Than.' The splendid fellow sprang to his feet,' and grasping me by the shoulder, raised his sword on high, exclaiming, And had the choice been left to me, I could not have chosen a more fitting mate for the first princess of Barsoom. Here is my hand upon your shoulder, John Carter, and my word that Sab Than shall go out at the point of my sword for the sake of my love for Helium, for Dejah Thoris, and for you. This very night I shall try to reach his quarters in the palace. How, I ask, you are strong guarded and a quadruple force patrols the sky. He bent his head in thought a moment, then raised it with an air of confidence. I only need to pass these guards and I can do it, he said at last. I know a secret entrance to the palace through the pinnacle of the highest tower. I fell upon it by chance one day as I was passing above the palace on patrol duty. In this work, it is required that we investigate any unusual occurrence we may witness. And a face peering from the pinnacle of the high tower of the palace was, to me, most unusual. I therefore drew near and discovered that the possessor of the peering face was none other than Sab Than. He was slightly put out at being detected, and commanded me to keep the matter to myself, explaining that the passage from the tower led directly to his apartments and was known only to him. "'If I can reach the roof of the barracks and get my machine, "'I can be in Sab Than's quarters in five minutes. "'But how am I to escape from this building, guarded as you say it is?' "'How well are the machine sheds at the barracks guarded?' I ask. "'There is usually but one man on duty there at night upon the roof. "'Go to the roof of this building, Katos Khan, and wait me there. "'Without stopping to explain my plans,' I retraced my way to the street and hastened to the barracks. I did not dare to enter the building, filled as it was with members of the Air Scout squadron, who, in common with all Zodanga, were on the lookout for me. The building was an enormous one, rearing its lofty head fully a thousand feet into the air. But few buildings in Zodanga were higher than these barracks, though several topped it by a few hundred feet. The docks of the great battleships of the line standing some fifteen hundred feet from the ground, while the freight and passenger stations of the merchant squadrons rose nearly as high. It was a long climb up the face of the building, and one fraught with much danger, but there was no other way, and so I essayed the task. The fact that Barsoomian architecture is extremely ornate— "'made the feat much simpler than I had anticipated, "'since I found ornamental ledges and projections "'which fairly formed a perfect ladder for me "'all the way to the eaves of the building. "'Here I met my first real obstacle. "'The eaves projected nearly twenty feet from the wall "'to which I clung, and though I encircled the great building, "'I could find no opening through them. "'The top floor was alight and filled with soldiers engaged "'in the pastimes of their kind.' I could not therefore reach the roof through the building. There was one slight, desperate chance, and that I decided I must take. It was for Dejah Thoris, and no man has lived who would not risk a thousand deaths for such as she. Clinging to the wall with my feet in one hand, I unloosened one of the long leather straps of my trappings, at the end of which dangled a great hook, by which air-sailors are hung to the sides and bottoms of their craft for various purposes of repair, and by means of which landing-parties are lowered to the ground from the battleships. I swung this hook cautiously to the roof several times before it finally found lodgment. Gently I pulled on it to strengthen its hold, but whether it would bear the weight of my body I did not know. It might be barely caught upon the very outer verge of the roof— so that as my body swung out at the end of the strap, it would slip off and launch me to the pavement a thousand feet below. An instant, I hesitated, and then, releasing my grasp upon the supporting ornament, I swung out into space at the end of the strap. Far below me lay the brilliantly lighted streets, the hard pavements, and death. There was a little jerk at the top of the supporting eaves, and a nasty, slipping, grating sound which turned me cold with apprehension. Then... The hook caught, and I was safe. Clambering quickly aloft, I grasped the edge of the eaves and drew myself to the surface of the roof above. As I gained my feet, I was confronted by the sentry on duty, into the muzzle of whose revolver I found myself looking. "'Who are you, and whence came you?' he cried. I am an air scout, friend, and very near a dead one, for just by the merest chance I escaped falling to the avenue below, I replied. But how came you upon the roof, man? No one has landed or come up from the building for the past hour. Quick, explain yourself, or I call the guard. Look, you here, sentry. And you shall see how I came and how close a shave I had to not coming at all, I answered, turning toward the edge of the roof, where, twenty feet below, at the end of my strap, hung all my weapons. The fellow, acting on impulse of curiosity, stepped to my side and to his undoing, for as he leaned to peer over the eaves, I grasped him by his throat and his pistol arm, and threw him heavily to the roof. The weapon dropped from his grasp and my fingers choked off his attempted cry for assistance. I gagged and bound him and then hung him over the edge of the roof as I myself had hung a few moments before. I knew it would be morning before he would be discovered, and I needed all the time that I could gain. Donning my trappings and weapons, I hastened to the sheds and soon had out both my machine and Kantos Khan's. Making his fast behind mine, I started my engine, and skimming over the edge of the roof, I dove down into the streets of the city far below the plain, usually occupied by the air patrol. In less than a minute, I was settling safely upon the roof of our apartment, beside the astonished Kantos Khan. I lost no time in explanation, but plunged immediately into a discussion of our plans for the immediate future. It was decided that I was to try to make Helium, while Kantos can, was to enter the palace and dispatch Sab Than. If successful, he was then to follow me. He set my compass for me, a clever little device which will remain steadfastly fixed upon any given point on the surface of Barzoom, and bidding each other farewell, we rose together and sped in the direction of the palace, which lay in the route, which I must take to reach Helium. As we neared the high tower... A patrol shot down from above, throwing its piercing searchlight full upon my craft, and a voice roared out a command to halt, following with a shot as I paid no attention to his hail. Kantos Khan dropped quickly into the darkness while I rose steadily and at terrific speed, raced through the Martian sky followed by a dozen of the air scout craft, which had joined the pursuit and later by a swift cruiser carrying a hundred men and a battery of rapid-fire guns by twisting and turning my little machine, now rising and now falling, I managed to elude their searchlights most of the time, but I was also losing ground by these tactics, and so I decided to hazard everything on a straightaway course and leave the result to fate and the speed of my machine. Kantos Khan had shown me a trick of gearing, which is known only to the Navy of Helium, that greatly increased the speed of our machines, so that I felt sure I could distance my pursuers if I could dodge their projectiles for a few moments. As I sped through the air, the screeching of the bullets around me convinced me that only by a miracle could I escape, but the die was cast, and throwing on full speed, I raced a straight course toward Helium. Gradually, I left my pursuers further and further behind— and I was just congratulating myself on my lucky escape when a well-directed shot from the cruiser exploded at the prow of my little craft. The concussion nearly capsized her, and with a sickening plunge she hurtled downward through the dark night. How far I fell before I regained control of the plane I do not know, but I must have been very close to the ground when I started to rise again as I plainly heard the squealing of animals below me. Rising again, I scanned the heavens for my pursuers, and finally making out their lights far behind me, saw that they were landing evidently in search of me. Not until their lights were no longer discernible did I venture to flash my little lamp upon my compass, and then I found to my consternation that a fragment of the projectile had utterly destroyed my only guide, as well as my speedometer. It was true I could follow the stars in the general direction of helium— but without knowing the exact location of the city or the speed at which I was traveling my chances for finding it, were slim. Helium lies a thousand miles southwest of Zodanga, and with my compass intact, I should have made the trip barring accidents in between four and five hours. As it turned out, however, morning found me speeding over a vast expanse of Dead Sea Bottom after nearly six hours of continuous flight at high speed. Presently a great city showed below me, but it was not helium, as that alone of all Barsoomian metropolises consists in two immense circular-walled cities about seventy-five miles apart and would have been easily distinguishable from the altitude at which I was flying. Believing that I had come too far to the north and west, I turned back in a southeasterly direction, passing during the forenoon several other large cities but none resembling the description which Kantos Khan had given me of helium. In addition to the twin city formation of helium, another distinguishing feature is the two immense towers, one of vivid scarlet rising nearly a mile into the air from the center of one of the cities, while the other of bright yellow and of the same height marks her sister. Thank you for listening. Conan and Friends is an In Shambles production.